From the hills of central New York in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. We thank our sponsors, Dryject and Intelligrow, and new sponsors, Plant Food, Greener Golf, and the Greenkeeper app. We really appreciate your support of these sponsors. The early phases of the pandemic shutdown revealed a pent-up demand from the general public to be out in the natural world. They looked out their windows, saw a golf course, and started to walk around. At the same time, the annual rite of spring golf is upon us as we emerge for relief from cabin fever or return from the South as snowbirds. This episode of Frankly Speaking will explore the wellness value of golf from both sides of the game, how to manage your facility, and your own approach to maximize the benefits that golf provides to society and our golf turf industry. Surprisingly for many in and out of the industry, the public seems to value our space as well. I'll chat with return guests to Frankly Speaking, Parker Anderson of Greener Golf and Paul McCormick, also known as the Mindful Superintendent at Fox Meadow Golf Club in Prince Edward Island. Later in the show, we'll review the Thomas Friedman book, Thank You for Being Late, a timely read during the pandemic with Chris Trittabaugh, golf course superintendent at Hazeltine National Golf Club. The impact of the pandemic has reverberated through every aspect of our lives as we struggle to balance the needs of society with our professional demands, our desires to be with family, friends, and maintain our own well-being. It seems being outside in nature is receiving renewed interest from most people who probably don't give it a second thought when there isn't a pandemic, even golfers, but it's innate. Here's Parker Anderson. Humans evolutionarily, we're looking for these spaces that are restorative environments. So natural environments are really restorative for us. And we have this concept of, in landscape architecture, we call it a prospect refuge space. So an area where we can kind of see the vast openness, but also have this protection of something behind you. And you can envision a golf hole is a lot like that, where you're standing on a tee, you're looking at this vast golf hole, but you have the protection of maybe some trees or the tee box kind of directs you in an area. So you have this comforting feeling of being present in a space, but having some protection, but having an open view. And those concepts are really valuable kind of evolutionarily for humans. I see a lot of that in golf course and park design and and green spaces as being valuable for those to to give humans those view sheds and those opportunities. So do we know it? Now, there's two things that come up. Do we know it? Is it something that we feel consciously? I don't think so. And I think it's ingrained in us, but we don't really have a way of describing it on a personal level. There's a concept called directed attention. So you talk a lot with your work and and your podcast about mindfulness and the importance of mindfulness and being present in a space. And there's this concept of directed attention, which is put forth by good friend and the sweetest lady I, I can recall at University of Michigan, Rachel Kaplan. Her and her husband studied for decades environmental psychology and came up with this concept of directed attention. So mindfulness, fatigued directed attention means you're, you're kind of easily irritated, you've got conflict, poor cognitive function, and you kind of feel disconnected from your community. And so by being in these natural areas called restorative environments, what happens is you, you're kind of fascinated by, by nature, present by you know the the sunrise, sunset, leaves rustling, clouds passing, all these concepts really restore these this uh, directed attention. So I think being out in nature, connecting to nature, really provides a resource for, for your mental health. We're social creatures and we, we really value our families, our tribes, and without that connection, we're stressed. It really results in this trauma that we're experiencing and diminishes our directed attention and it makes us more irritable and the mindfulness is less present. And by connecting with nature, what that does is it restores some of that. So going for a walk is really important, but 
being out on a golf course, you're with other people, you're experiencing nature and you're rebuilding that directed attention fatigue and restoring it. We're experiencing a, a societal trauma. You know, we've got in the US a million cases, approximately 50,000 deaths up to date. And that's, that's a serious trauma that we're experiencing. It's a tragedy and that's not to be taken lightly. And, you know, we're talking about golf here, but using golf as this way to rebuild some of that, what, we're, what we've lost is really something that I'm passionate about. And I think what people have realized is that we're disconnected from nature. We've been for decades have been kind of taking and borrowing from nature. And this event has really been a check on our behavior of saying we can't be continuing to borrow from nature and we need to be better connected to nature. And I think people have, have really realized by being confined and being locked up and, and experiencing this societal trauma that nature is important to us. And, and so they see these green spaces like golf courses walking by it and saying, hey, this feels nice. I want to participate in what's going on here. I see these trees. I see this green space. And you know, there's people out walking around and that just feels right. You know, it's, it's something that's innate to us of maybe going back to that prospect refuge concept of seeing these open spaces and feeling connected to it and, and feeling the benefit even just from walking by it. So I think people have really seen golf courses as an alternative use and an alternative value to a community. You can imagine in an urban area where, where it's a very built environment where people are locked up in their apartment buildings and they're out just feeling this anxiety or this stress of being confined and being disconnected from, from nature and from other people. And then you just go outside and you're in a park or a, walking by a golf course or walking in a golf course and you feel better. And that, the research shows that that's a true concept. And uh, Mackenzie, Dr. Mackenzie, is someone that I really look up to. And a lot of people don't realize that he was a physician before he was a golf course architect. And one of the reasons why he got into golf course architecture was because he would prescribe outdoor activity or prescribe golf to his patients and they wouldn't come back because they'd receive all these health benefits from being out playing golf. So you know, that's an example, it's, it's anecdotal, but it's an example of how golf has really provided a, a medicine really to this built space that we've locked ourselves up in. I'd like to take a minute and talk to you about DryJack services that offers unique soil management tactics not available in a single machine. Science has demonstrated the benefit of water injection cultivation and sand channel injection offers a unique opportunity to break through any restricting layers in your soil profile. It's a flexible and affordable service available throughout the U.S. and used by many of the great golf courses. I've personally seen the value of this practice and now with the ability to inject non-dried sand at several different depths, it offers even more advantages. Contact your local DryJack service representative or visit dryjack.com. Let's return to my conversation with Parker Anderson of Greener Golf about the value of green space and how to be intentional about maximizing its use with the concept of place-based design. Place-based design is really understanding your community, knowing the values, the history, the interests of the neighbors and the character of the society that you're in or the place that you're in, the community and the industry, what the climate's like and, and looking for ways to engage these people and stakeholders you know, they're part of the golf course, whether you like it or not. And you need community buy-in in order to be successful, especially in where we're at now. I mean, the place-based design concept is understanding the stakeholders. And so once you understand the stakeholders, you can find ways to engage non-golfers. And really that's the value for golf is engaging these non-golfers because what they do is become advocates for golf and say, well, I'm a beekeeper. I don't play golf, but this golf course is a bank for bees. There's wild hives and there's managed hives. And this, this is a resource for my industry. And so that concept of engaging these non-golfers really adds value to the golf experience for golfers and for, for the golf industry operators. 
to continue on Mackenzie is he designed golf holes for all levels of golfers. For example, you can, the duffer that kind of hits it down the middle, just rolls the ball. There's a path for that golfer on a Mackenzie golf hole, but there's also the strategy of the low handicap of how to strategize this golf hole. So there's an interest for the low handicap and the high handicap. And I think if we take that perspective broadly to a community level and say, how does this provide for the golfer, but also provide for the community? That's taking it a little bit of a step further and saying, this green space is a resource. It could be uh, agriculture, urban gardens. There's citizen science going on. There's community building, beekeeping. You know, there's education involved with the first green and the GCSA, what they do with, with the first green program and engaging kids. There's going to be fewer golfers spacing. There's going to be fewer people working. If working with the community is going to require us coordinating things, it sounds like there's some challenges. So what's the big advice you start with before we get into our final segment, Parker, about the guidelines and highlighting the operational things? So let's start to make this transition here from the conflict and the things that you can adapt and do and the actual logistics of uh, making it happen. Yeah, well, from a business perspective, what we're trying to do is optimize the asset. And the asset is the golf course space. If you look at the spectrum of scenarios of where we are, we're kind of in this maximal caution space right now where courses are closed, staff is limited, all these scenarios. And and the other side of that spectrum is business as normal. I don't think we're going to be at business as usual for a while or if not, you know, we're, we're going to have to adapt. And so the scenario where it's maximal caution, where we're closed, that's devastating to this industry. So how do we get to a point where we can roll out some of these golf, but maybe engage the community so that they see the value of this space as well? So optimizing the asset. If you're a superintendent, you obviously know your space and know the programming, what's going on in your golf course pretty much all, all the time. There's a significant amount of times, even on these busy public courses, where the asset is not optimized, meaning the entire golf course isn't completely full of golfers at one point. So example is you tee off on the first tee in the morning, meaning the back nine is open. Or late in the afternoon, the golf course is a little slower. So can you designate a space in that golf course to utilize as a resource for other uses? Can you engage another part of the community into that space and add value and optimize that asset when it's not being utilized? I'd like to chat with you about the Plant Food Company, a liquid fertilizer manufacturer from Cranberry, New Jersey, our newest sponsor and an old friend. Plant Food is a solid third-generation family-owned business that's been focused on plant nutrition since its inception in 1946, when the company was founded by Edward Platts. I became familiar with Plant Food in the late 1990s when our research at the Bethpage State Park was initiated and Plant Food immediately stepped up to support our efforts to reduce our pesticide use. We found their products to be cost-effective solutions to the nutrient management needs we established in our research. And I found this also to be true for other research programs, such as Rutgers University's anthracnose trials, where the plant food nutrient programs have always performed equally to most fungicide formulations. These guys think differently. They approach everything from a plant health perspective, and it works. Don't take my word for it. Contact your local plant food rep and get more information. While we have wandered far afield from the value of golf to a community, ultimately a golf course has to operate for golfers to sustain itself. To make that process more intentional, Parker Anderson's company Greener Golf released some guidelines for the journey back to playing golf. 
So I see golf as a way we can rebuild some of the things that we've lost in this crisis. I mean, we're in a time of high sensitivity now, and people see golf as, why are you focusing on golf when you know we're in such a crisis right now? Well, there's golf as a green space. It's a way we can rebuild some of these social concepts and social needs that we've, we have that we've lost over this crisis. The guidelines are a way for us to really give a gift to the golf world of just saying, you know, we want to operate safely, we want to stay open, we want to play golf, but in a way that is safe and according to the guidelines of society that we need to follow in order to, to weather this storm. We've seen a lot of discussions and there's been so many organizations that have put forth some great work on how to operate a golf course. And we want to have a unified message as an industry. And there's been a lot of guidelines that are specifically for the superintendents and guidelines that are specifically for the pros and the golf staff. And we want to just have a data-supported set of guidelines that not only provide value to those stakeholders, but also address the golfer. Because really the crux of this, the meat of this is really uh, the golfer experience and how the golfer behaves on the golf course. Because the optics of golf and the neighbor that sees four players standing around a whole location and calls the governor and says, hey, golfers are breaking the, the social distancing guidelines. And this is what happened in Nevada. They were open for golf and the governor got too many complaints and so just shut it down. So the responsibility really falls on the golfer. So what the purpose of this is really to provide uh, an idea of what a golfer can experience and, and look at their journey. So there's there's a concept called journey mapping of, of looking at a way where someone's sitting on their couch and they say, hey, I want to play golf. So that's the start of their journey. So how do you go about setting up a tee time, paying for your green fee? What do you do when you get to the course, into the parking lot, what to expect once you get there? Interaction with the starter, your tee time. How do you operate on a golf course? Where do you stand? How do you uh, minimize breaking social distancing on the green, you know, using continuous putting or concepts like that of just the, the entire experience from start to finish and what to expect. And I think giving that tool to a golfer is really valuable because really a lot of this, uh, we're relying on the golfers to behave. And so we need to provide them with that blueprint. And it's really interesting because that's exactly what we heard in the confusion that's ensued for the last several weeks now, a month or more for some of us, is that we think we can operate in superintendents, you know, there's nobody better thinking on their feet than these folks, right? I mean, to the person, they know how to problem solve. They come in every day, have to deal with weather and staffing and equipment and all these things that move in multiple different directions. So as the primary audience that I interact with, I know that they are trying to figure it out. I think the shutting down of the inside left a little bit of lack of coordination and demonstrated some value of the front of the house coordination because I heard from a lot of superintendents like, yeah, we're doing okay, but whoa, <laughs> you know, they're in the parking lot. They're gathering at the first tee. They're trying to hug me. <laughs> you know, they know that, wait, what's going on here? But I think your approach is number one, as we've talked about already, recognize that everybody's a little off balance. Mm -hmm. Things don't seem normal anymore and normal's going to get redefined. And by not, I don't want to necessarily embracing it, but it just say, Hey, this is happening. We can agree this is happening to some degree to everybody, mm -hmm. right? And some people are in denial about it. Some people are embracing it like this and trying to figure out how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. And you describe it in your, your documents here as, as the roadmap to normality. You say it as prepare, arrive, play after. You talk about the car-to-car -car trip that they're taking on the card, Mm -hmm. Walk in the walk. <laughs> I think here's what superintendents might say candidly if I put them to the task. Yeah. You can't get them to fix ball marks. You think you're going to get golfers to do this? 
Well, when the alternative is no golf, I think there's got to be a compromise or got to be a learning process because golfers, they've realized that this is a valuable asset to them and they're, they'd much rather be out on the golf course than, than hitting golf balls in their living room like they've been doing. And so providing that blueprint of the car to car experiencing and, and really trying to empower golfers to walk the walk and really be responsible for their industry. Because I've interacted with so many superintendents in the past and been on so many phone calls with them that, like you said, they're brilliant at what they do and excellent managers. And they can manage crises and figure out the scheduling and figuring out the cleaning of equipment that's dialed. And it's all about communication, the ability of the golf shop to operate on its own and the superintendent and, and their staff and the, the maintenance staff to operate on their own siloed has to be a thing of the past because the communication and, and how a golfer interacts with the space needs to be uniform and understood by all, all operators. You know, I think you're, I think you're right on in, in that changes are, are happening and this crisis has really brought to light some issues that we've been having. And, and this crisis is really an opportunity to, to rebuild and restore some of the things that we've been taking for granted. Okay. So let's get into some of these details uh, that you write about, because you've already mentioned one, which I think is, is really interesting. And that is the continuous putting, the relaxing of these things, the flexibility in tee times and distancing at things. And let me just say, there's a couple of things going on. I want to think there's a lot of integrity associated with the game of golf that you have to call a penalty on yourself. Yes. Mm -hmm. But at yeah. the same time, we're also very rigid. You know, I have to be candid and say, I was looking at updates about how the handicapping systems were going to handle scores generated during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, I literally guffawed. I'm like, <laughs> really? We're worried about this? Now, this was early on where... They weren't even accepting that we were shutting down, right? That somehow yeah. scores were going to keep mattering. <laughs> uh, can you talk a little bit? I mean, am I, yeah. am I crazy here? I mean, this just, just looks like bad optics that we're fussing about a handicap. And tell me how you feel about the way we're going to be flexible in some of these things. Are you hopeful or are you like, man, we really got to, we're going to have some work here. Yeah, I think focusing on the handicapping and posting scores was a little maybe insensitive, but I think what we're trying to do here is develop a more relaxed atmosphere and, and really appreciate what we have. We've included in the guidelines some of the relaxed rules of golf that the Golf Channel put together in 2015 of basically seven rules. They're intended to be very relaxing and, and help people enjoy the game more. If you're in a divot, maybe agree with your partners to just pull it out because behind the scenes, what's happening is golf course managers and maintenance are operating at 30 to 40% at some facilities. So they might not be able to fix divots or ball marks or, or mow that day. Right. And so can you still create an environment where you still have that competitive nature, but also it's a relaxed atmosphere where we're just out here appreciating it? Well, let's talk about that a little bit more because a lot of the bread and butter of the golf industry are leagues, are tournaments mm -hmm. where a lot of people come, gather, and then disperse 200 on a double shotgun, right? You know yeah. what I'm talking about? Yeah. Well, first off, I don't see that happening anytime in the near future in its old form, right? where it's dense and all at once. So talk a little bit about, if we're talking about relaxing these rules, and hopefully we're going to be willing to do that, you know, about our scoring, but at the same time, the competitive nature for the short term is coming out of it. How do you, as a golfer, right? 
you yeah. know, you're going to keep score. Yeah. You're going to, you know, have a, a greenie and a Sandy with your local foursome, you know, dishing out the cash yeah. uh, legally or really whatever. Right. Yeah. So that's one way to be competitive. And then maybe that's going to be on the rise. Yeah. There ain't going to be a lot of that other stuff going on. Is there a way golfers will embrace this and find competition that also allows for the relaxed rules? I absolutely think so. And I, the USGA is probably going to bite my head off for saying so, but I think as long as you have a consensus about what the rules are of the game. So if we're going to play the relaxed rules, let's all agree to these rules and have some sort of a consensus to begin with. And that protects the field. And what you said about tournaments, I don't, I don't think a shotgun tournament is in our near future at, at any point uh, soon because of the consolidation and all these people at once. But with the technology we have and, and Venmo of payouts and so forth and, and the ability to interact uh, electronically, you know, I think there's opportunities for creating events that might be you go out and play and, and have a day of the competition, but it, but it's staggered. The tee times are staggered and the finishes are staggered, but you can still have that community engagement at the end. It might be electronic, but it still is building that camaraderie and, and so forth. The superintendent's role and the, and the head professional's role is really to be a communicator. And really our role and our jobs in the industry rely on buy-in and following of guidelines by the players. So many superintendents are active on Twitter and social media and being able to share, you know, that this golf course is the safe place, first of all, is, is really important, but also that this golf course being here provides a value, not only as a recreational opportunity, but what the superintendent really can get some value from is engaging with this community. Who are the neighbors? What are their interests? You know, they're, they're getting a benefit from this golf course being there. So how do you engage them to be a partner versus a neighbor is always complaining about this and that? Yeah. How do you engage that person in a, in a more positive way? The golf guidelines we discussed are available at greener.golf, not .com, greener.golf. Parker's sustainable golf consulting business, Greener Golf, focuses on partnering with nature and promoting the positive narrative of golf in society. Parker was a research scientist at the University of Minnesota, is a member of the PGA and GCSAA, and holds master's degrees in landscape architecture and sustainable systems from the University of Michigan. When we return, I'll chat with Paul McCormick. This is Frankly Speaking, and I'm Frank Rossi. I'm here to chat with you about a product I've been personally involved with in research and education for over 15 years. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro. Many of you know I'm not one to feign praise on a product without data. Civitas Turf Defense has performed successfully in hundreds of research trials. Civitas combines two compounds with demonstrated ability to activate plant defenses. They assist with the control of insects and diseases as well as increases in stress tolerance. Well, it sounds too good to be true, but the science and experience is solid in support of the programmatic use of Civitas, an OMRI-listed product that leads to reduction in pesticide, nutrient, and water use. A recent ban on pesticide use in Cape Cod led course managers to seek solutions with Civitas. Its use led to high-quality playing conditions with an 80% reduction in environmental risk. Learn more about Civitas turf defense available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. Welcome back to Frankly Speaking. I visited with an old friend of the show, the Mindful Superintendent Paul McCormick recently, and asked him about what it's been like starting up again during the pandemic. There's some semblance of normalcy to it, but really there's a whole lot of not along with it at the same time, because everything you took for granted when you would start in a normal season 
and focus on. And we still have to focus on these things. I'm still finishing a renovation of five holes and I have shapers here and finishers here and trying to get all that. But then every other process, we had to kind of tear it all down and build it all back up again. And staff to food and beverage to setting up carts to everything you can think about. And, and that's taxing. Taxing because they're different. But what I know about you guys is they're going to get routine. Totally. And I think this is the taxing part to me is that you guys have got to set all this up now, right? Yeah. But what I'm thinking about is it feels taxing emotionally and mentally, not really physically. No. Most of the conversations I hear and see is, man, I can still cut lasers on these greens or I really like getting out and doing this. And that may be good because it could be a lot of us uh, will be doing that a little bit more, uh, at least in a transition to when things become more stable. But that's still, you know, change, period. That's the struggle. It, it is. And I think throughout this entire situation thus far, it's learning to constantly let go of what you think it should be or what your opinion or what you read about. <laughs> just, it's like, oh, no, got to let that go. Oh, no, got to let that go too. And it's not just at work because, I mean, you have to go home too and you have to take care of yourself at home. You have to take care of your family. You have to buy groceries. You have to get gas. You have to do everything you normally do is 30% harder. And makes it harder to short circuit that reflex. I notice with myself, man, the simplest things like, Tuck, can you pick this up finally? Does it, do I, how many times do we have to trip? You know, and mm. normally it's like, yeah, I'll just pick it up and deal with it. Or I'll say, hey, man, can you deal with it? It's got that edge to it now. It's reflexive, it's agitated. And that's probably where. Slowing it down the best you can is what's going to help you. But man, is it hard. It's hard on a yeah. good day. At home and at work here too. It's, I was thinking this morning when I walked into the shop, we have a hand disinfectant station just outside our door. And so it's again, just using that as an opportunity to stop and pause before you walk through the shop door every single time, not just first thing in the morning, every right. single time through the day. And so I'm lucky we our shop is placed in the middle of a forest really. So you can just pause and you can wait for 20 seconds and take a few breaths and then continue on. And that's the type of thing that you just have to keep coming back to that over and over and over and giving yourself space. I think too, when you feel like your head's going to pop off and, and you don't feel good inside and all the rest, because most of the time you don't. So we're talking a lot about uh, the mental health and well-being of golfers. We work out here <laughs> and I got to believe we get a fair amount from it too. Can you talk a little bit about the role it's played for you thinking about your work as a respite as well? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. I mean, so many of the things we reach for throughout a situation like this are you want comfort and, and you want that sense of normalcy. And, and when I just went out yesterday and was filling in a few scars and I changed one of the holes and just the simple act of pounding the hole changer in the ground and, and, and just doing that kind of allows you, I won't say to forget, but it kind of just takes you out of it. So when you're sitting on a mower or when you're changing a pin or when you're just doing the normal things we do in the run of a day that we completely take for granted, these all of a sudden are opportunities for us to just kind of disconnect for a bit and, and just reconnect with what we love to do and, and why we love to do what we do. And even more so, especially with being short-staffed and ha not having people, and all of a sudden you're the person on the mower. Well, I haven't changed holes in a really long time, and I haven't been a person on a mower in a really long time. So it kind of reconnects you not only to just that sense of normalcy in a given year, but maybe 20 years ago or maybe 10 years ago 
were the last time you did that, right? So, And that kind of change feels good. It does. It does. That's the thing, right? So, so okay, I'm doing this hand sanitizing. I'm having to deal with all this sanitation stuff. That change doesn't feel good. I'll get used to it. It'll become reflexive action over a period of time. I believe we won't even notice it. What's more interesting to me is not even the work, but being out in the space. Well, again, it comes back to that ability to pause, I think. It's when you intentionally walk from point A to point B, and you are able to stop and, and over the last few weeks, watch a tree bloom or watch an animal wake up. And, and really, that's the part that I think lots of times in the middle of what we do in a regular season, we're so busy, we don't see that stuff. And I think this whole pandemic has showed us that when it's a forced pause, you have no choice but to slow down and maybe watch the birds out your front window or just have a cup of tea with your spouse or your kids and taking a walk and being in nature and, and just reconnecting on a, a very ground visceral level with the earth is a good thing. And when we have 150 acres that we tend all the time, well, maybe taking an extra 15 minutes to walking from point A to point B is a good idea. And it affords you that gap you need to kind of just be there. So I know you feel for the golfers now that are going to be able to come out and play their golf course. And of course, you've improved their product and invested in your course over the years to make it even better for them. Yep. I'm sure you're hopeful they're going to be very appreciative. What are the kinds of things you're going to, I mean, you obviously are going to have interaction with your golfers and you're yep. you know, obviously going to have to work through the, the hiccups of sanitation. I'm more interested in the recuperative, the way you're going to have that conversation with them about what it means just to be back outside mm. and how many complaints you think you're going to hear. Well, it's an interesting question because we've been communicating quite a lot with our membership and with our golfers lately. And, and every time we hear something and we know something, we're, we're trying to share as much information as we can just to prep them for what it's going to be because so many of them, they just want to walk back through the door and have it be just exactly the way it always was. So even to the point yesterday afternoon, actually, we did a short video that we're going to throw up on Facebook of just me just explaining how things are going to be for the most part and just really accenting the simplicity of the game again and just saying use this gift that we've been given to return to the game we all love as an opportunity to rediscover the purity and the simplicity of it and and if there's no bottle washers there's no rakes there's no yardage markers there's none of that stuff we'll just be there like you said about just going for the walk we'll go for a walk and just play the game and if you have to distance from everyone well you're going to be probably more alone than you're used to you're not going to be sitting on a cart drinking a beer doing whatever so just reconnect with that therapeutic side of it and appreciate it and, and look at the game again through a new lens and maybe rediscover something you haven't really experienced since playing as a junior or, or playing as a, a teenager and just harken back to the simplicity of it. Because, I mean, really at its core, it's such a simple game. You have a stick in your hand and you whack a ball and you go for a walk and you try to put that ball into a little hole. Take the process, distill it down and figure out what's important about it. And if it's worth it, keep doing it. And if it, maybe if it isn't worth it, it's time to leave it be and kind of move on. And I really think a lot of people that I've spoken with, just even from a work side and then even in their personal lives, being able to just pause and then really realize, okay, well, how important is everything that I think is important when I'm super busy? And that can be really uncomfortable for a lot of people. But I really hope that as a, as a collective unit, we can come through this and maybe just look at it a bit differently. And really, again, just like the golfers come back to realizing that the game is fairly simple when you break it down to the nuts and bolts and, and really 
can we move forward in a more sustainable way, not just from an ecological standpoint, but from just a sustainable framework that makes sense for everyone? And maybe that means a sales force has half the people, or maybe it means we have half the people. I don't know what it means, but for the good of the game itself, I think we have to start asking those questions moving forward. We'll be right back to review the book, Thank You for Being Late, by Thomas Friedman, with Hazeltine National Superintendent Chris Tritabar. I'm Frank Rossi. This is Frankly Speaking. We live in an increasingly data-driven world. We know as golf turf professionals, we need to use data to enhance our decision-making, but it can be tough to absorb all that information and even more difficult to put it into practice. Turf grass managers are now becoming data managers, and that's where Dr. Bill Kreuzer comes in. Bill designed Greenkeeper to simplify the way managers handle data acquisition and analysis and implement the latest turf research. Greenkeeper is a pioneer in the use of plant growth regulators and product tracking, and they've launched new features such as Performance Tracker that links management practices to playability, and pest prediction models and rotation management BMPs are integrated with product use. Greenkeeper Premium Membership includes Application Advisor to aid product selection, growing degree day models for both PGRs and DMI fungicides, growth potential and other environmental models, inventory manager and performance tracker, plus premium members receive a 10% discount on all soil tissue water testing. For more information, visit greenkeeperapp.com. Thomas Friedman's book, Thank You for Being Late, is a story of what happens when we slow down for a few minutes and notice the world today through the eyes of a leading progressive voice. Friedman is a native Minnesotan, so I asked Chris Tritabaugh, a fellow Minnesotan, about Mr. Friedman. Yeah, so he did play at Hazeltine. Up until just a couple years ago, he was a member out here, a national member, and he would come a few times a year when he was home visiting friends. Unfortunately, I never did have a chance to meet him, and I regret that now. Do you know what part of Minnesota he's from? Yeah, St. Louis Park, which is just on the outskirts of Minneapolis. It's a predominantly Jewish community and and has been for many, many years. And actually, at the end of the book, he writes really eloquently about growing up in that community and how it's kind of made him what he is now and, and sort of developed his feelings about life and made him into the person that he is, which was really interesting for myself. I grew up in Minnesota, too, much smaller town outside of a metro area. But Really, a lot of that resonated with me because of much of what he said about growing up here in this state around the people that, that live here really rang true with me having done so myself. I, I've read his column, you know, not religiously, but many, many times over the years and, and really always uh, felt like this is a person who I, I resonate with. And, you know, you could say it's because of politics or it's because of whatever, but I just think his ideas are something that are similar to the way that I think. And, You know, what I really found interesting in the book is he talks about this need because of Moore's law, as you said, which is the idea that everything from a technology standpoint basically doubles in one year, two years, I think it is, and the price goes down and the capabilities go up. And this happens at this incredible pace. And we've seen that. He talks about 2007 being the beginning of all this and all the things that kind of started in 2007, one of which being the iPhone. And, you know, it's amazing when you think about that. 2007 is when I started my career as a superintendent. And at that time, we didn't really have smartphones. And now we think about all of the things that we use them for. And it's really amazing to think that all that has happened in the course of my career as a superintendent. And what I, what I really found interesting, my, maybe my favorite thing in the book was he talked about, you know, we as a people need to be lifelong learners. And if you at any point in your life 
stop learning, you're, you're really going to, I don't know if fall behind is the right statement, but you know things are going to pass you by very quickly. And from my own standpoint in my own career, I think about what I knew when I started and what I was doing and what I know and what I'm doing now. And I, I see that. And I'm, I'm so happy that I've continued to learn about being a superintendent and all the things that go into that because man, I, I was nowhere when I started and now, you know, advanced to a, a different level. And, you know, I think that's the key. When I decided I wanted to read this book, I read the very first part, which I think you'll probably remember quite well. And he's talking yeah. about waiting for a person that he was going to meet with at a coffee shop and how much he enjoyed the fact that this person was late in getting to the meeting and how he's sitting there and he's not, he doesn't have anything to do. And he just sat there calmly and quietly and waited for this person to show up and didn't want to start any kind of project because he didn't know when they were going to arrive. And, you know, he talked about that, just that space to just slow down. Well, you know, something that I've changed a lot over my time as a superintendent is, is what I do when I go home. And when I started, I was just recently married. We had no kids. And then we had our first daughter fairly early in my career. So I didn't have a, a long period of career without kids. I've mostly had kids for most of my career as a superintendent. But I used to, I'd go home and, you know, I'd maybe get something to eat. And I'd get my computer out and I'd start reading articles. I'd read your articles. I'd read different people's articles. And I'd, I'd read about turf. I'd read about golf course architecture. And it was sort of like, you know, I kind of never stopped gaining that knowledge, which is good in a sense. But at the same time, you know, it was just sort of like this scattershot, like just read everything I can and see what I can do. But I don't do that anymore. And, you know, really, when I get home from work, you know, I don't spend a lot of time on my computer unless I have to. I try not to spend a lot of time on my phone unless I have to. Better at that some days than others. But trying to be there and do things with my kids that they want to do, you know, watch a show, listen to some music, make dinner with my wife, clean up the kitchen after she's done. You know, now with our brand new son, who's, who's just about to be six months old, spend time with him. It seems like our profession sometimes is a place where people who don't necessarily really love learning wind up. You know, they know as much as they need to know to sort of function in what they're doing. And it could be all the way from the superintendent into the staff itself. When you read a book like this, and I know I got so passionate about it because I'm the first generation of my family to go to college. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm only in this country a couple of generations to begin with. Yep. So I have that sort of immigrant hunger still mm -hmm. that he talks about. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about how we have to adapt to this and being lifelong learners, how that plays out in your staff? Well, so as, as you're saying that, what I'm thinking of, you know, how do we do that and what do we do here? And, and the first thing that comes to my mind is that, you know, what I want is the people who work here to, number one, above all else, is to enjoy this job. And, you know, as you said, you love getting on a triplex and, you know, you and I have spent time together and I can see in you the passion that you have for being on a golf course, for spending time with people who do this, for learning about turf on, on just a, an incredible level. And that's what I like about this job. And I want to make sure that everybody who comes here to work gets to enjoy it in the way that they should. Now, that might be a high school kid up to a retired person and then, you know, staff members who are hoping to do this for a career. And so if I give them the space to enjoy it, that's really what I'm trying to do is not create a workplace where it's all about get this done, get this done, get this done all day long, but more so like come here and enjoy it. And I know that if I have people who are working here, 
who are enjoying the job, that they're going to learn more about it, that they're going to want to learn more about it, that they're going to do great work and they're going to enjoy it. And if they're enjoying their job, then the results are going to be better. I think we worry too much about, we have to get the results. And then we turn into this sort of like death camp where it's just this drudgery to come to work every day. And, oh my God, we got to get this result. And it's so important. And, you know, I'm going to get mad at anybody who I don't think is thinking about this in the same way that I am. But I I found that to be the opposite. If you give people space to enjoy the job, they're going to work at a really high level. Of course, you have to hire the right people. And of course, you know, you're going to run into people who aren't going to do that. But for the most part, if you give people a chance to enjoy what they're doing, they're going to really be productive and they're going to do great work. Would you call this one of the best books uh, you've read so far in 2020? Well, I, I think it is the best book that I've read in 2020. And I'm, I'm currently on my 20th book of the year. And that's audiobooks and books that I've read. And this is by far the most reading that I've done in any time period. But that all comes from wanting to learn more. And I think my favorite thing about this book is all the ideas in it are great. But what it really did is it opened my mind up to different areas, to a different way of thinking about the world that's going on around us. And all of a sudden I went, okay, I'm a golf course superintendent. I really love turf and I like nutrients and moisture and all of that sort of thing. But man, I I really, I find other things interesting too. And this book really opened my eyes to that. Chris Tritabaugh is the golf course superintendent at Hazeltine National. Thomas Friedman's book is Thank You for Being Late. And thank you for listening to Frankly Speaking. And thanks to my guests, Parker Anderson, Paul McCormick, and Chris Tritabaugh. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass, Plant Food Company, Greener Golf, Greenkeeper App, and Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. Frankly Speaking is recorded and produced in my basement these days, but normally at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management, John Kiger, and executive producer, Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining me.